So tonight we, we are back in Romans 8. We started Romans 8 last week in the middle of Romans 8 tonight, and then we will end our time in Romans this semester at the end of Romans 8 next week. So I hope you'll make it out uh, for that. Friends, um, the show Friends, which I'm told uh, you young people watch on the Netflix sometimes. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's one of my favorite shows. It, it came used to come on repeat on TBS all the time, and I've watched every episode like five times. Chandler Bing has got to be my favorite character in the show because um, he's hilarious. He's hilarious. And um, my favorite Chandler Bing moment goes a little like this. Him and Monica, his wife, they have um, not had an easy time getting pregnant, and so they're exploring uh, the idea of adoption. And so they, I, I can't remember how, but they, they find this couple that has adopted a son, and so they go to their place to, to, to hang out with them and, and talk to them about adoption. And Chandler finds himself in the hallway, and he meets little Timmy, or whatever his name is, and, and they're kind of getting to know each other, and says, well, that's great. Well, you know, I got to go. I, I got to go. We're, we're here to talk to your mom and dad about how they adopted you. And the kid, I mean, the kid's like 10 or 11 years old. And he goes, what? And to his Chandler Bing goes, I got nothing. <laughs> I'm adopted. I didn't say that. Anyway, it's a great moment. It's my favorite Chandler Bing moment. The theme uh, of Romans 8, Romans 8 is just, just fully packed, amazing chapter in all of the Bible. And the theme of Romans 8, I would say from beginning to end, that Paul is trying to drive home something that he believes should and could and will be a reality in the life of every believer, is the absolute assurance of the love of God. And last week, uh, the way he introed that, first he said there is no condemnation, something he said before, but he said um, one of the ways we see this at work in our life is that we have the indwelling spirit. The spirit of God, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, dwells within us. His power is in us and we live in that power. We live our lives in the spirit. Tonight, as he uh, moves on into the, the middle portion of chapter 8, he says, By that same Spirit, we become more and more acquainted with the glorious truth of adoption. But it's not weird. It's not weird that we're adopted. Actually, there's no greater assurance than for us to know and believe that we are children of God. And that's what Paul wants to talk about that and its implications here tonight. So if you would, read with me Romans 8, uh, starting in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is God's Word for us tonight. Let's pray before we look into this. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You... That you're our Father, and that we can know that, and that in knowing that we can know that we are your children, we pray that this truth would be life to us tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to look at three things for you, and all three of them uh, having to do with adoption. And the first one is this, adoption and being. Adoption and being. Look at verse 14 there. Last week he talked about if we're in Christ, if there's no condemnation uh, for us because we're in Christ, because we are believers, then we have his spirit in us. And in verse 14 he says, for all who are led by the spirit are sons of God. Not will be, not can be, not might be. For all who are led by the spirit, all of those in Christ are are sons of God. It is a state of being. It is an identity. We are sons and daughters. We are children of God by adoption. First, this analogy that uh, adoption, this isn't the only place that adoption comes up in the New Testament, but this analogy as Paul uses it, uh, back in his day, in that culture, especially in Roman culture, uh, this analogy, this image of adoption, uh, to be an adopted son would be to be deliberately chosen by a father who didn't have an heir. An heir, a man who wanted someone to carry his name, to carry his wealth, uh, to carry the things that he had accomplished in life, wanted somebody to carry that on for him after death. He would adopt a son. He would deliberately choose a son to perpetuate his name and to carry on the state by full inheritance. And so to be an adopted son in this culture would be a great honor. But not only would it be a great honor, it would be a great responsibility. And the key is, and maybe adoption illustrated by my friend's analogy kind of has this kind of weird connotation to it uh, sometimes. Like, does he know he's adopted? Um, You know, I'll get to my son in a minute. Um, But to be an adopted son would be to to not in any way be inferior to a natural born son. Actually, an adopted son might actually enjoy more affection uh, than a natural born son, because the intentionality with which the adopt, why the adoption would take place, and that um, that adopted son would actually maybe be more likely to imitate the father because of the great honor and responsibility that he would have because of being adopted. 
So we think of that image and the image that Paul would have had in mind and, and how the, the common practice of adoption in that day. And Paul is saying, because of the Spirit, because God has put His Spirit in our hearts, we have that same thing with the God of the universe. With the God of the universe, we're not just his subjects. He is our king. He is our Lord. But we're not just his subjects. We're not just his playthings. We're not just his action figures. We're his children. And this has been his purpose all along. And he, Paul says we have that with God. And the main thing that he concentra- uh, contrasts that with there out of the gate uh, is he contrasts it with a spirit of slavery, a spirit of adoption versus a spirit of fla- slavery by which we would fall back into fear. Well, think about this, and I think that's a, it's a perfectly apt contrast. What is the difference between a slave and a son? If you think about an estate, you think about an estate where a father is the head of the estate, and the father has sons and the father has slaves or servants even, okay? How does a slave relate to the father? A slave relates to the father, whether consciously or subconsciously, purely based on performance and record. Because the definition of his relationship is wholly defined by whether he is measuring up or not. Whether he is measuring up to his expectations, his responsibilities, his duties. That relationship, the relationship of a slave to the father is wholly measured by how he measures up. So that relationship, the definition of that relationship can change. Based on how he's measuring up. But think about a son. And this is not uncommon. This is easy to see, right? The son's relationship is defined with the father by the objective truth that he is a son. Nothing can take it away. If it's the objective truth, it's true because it's true, right? Uh, You hear this all the time. You know, a a parent can get so exasperated with a child, you know, if they're doing something that grieves them or whatever, but they're saying nothing can take away that you're my child, right? Nothing can take that away from somebody. Relationship of a son is defined by the objective truth of his identity of a son, and nothing he can do changes that. And because of that, there is no fear. No fear, Paul says. How this kind of works out practically in life, I'm reminded of a story I came across over Christmas. Uh, an elf on a shelf, maybe your family does that. Um, it's a new thing to me, relatively new. Um, never done it in my house, didn't do it growing up. But if you're not familiar with elf on a shelf, um, it's just one of those, I don't know what to call it. I don't want to denigrate it. I was going to say tricks, but that sounds bad. Um, it's a game you play in the lead up to Christmas, right? Where every morning there's this, <laughs> it's creepy really. Uh, there's a little elf doll and it moves around the house. <laughs> like you really want to scare the ever living daylights out of your children. But every day uh, the elf is in a different location in the house. And, and the whole idea is that the elf is, the elf is watching, right? So you better be good if you want your gifts on Christmas. The elf is watching. One of the cardinal rules to this game apparently is you cannot touch the elf, right? You cannot touch the elf. Well, this is a news story that I came across, okay? Apparently, there was a little girl in New York that broke the cardinal rule. Um, and she knew she was in trouble because not only she did she touch it, it fell off the shelf, right? And so she's, she thinks to herself, because as the rules state, if you touch the elf, Christmas is over, <laughs> So this little girl has knocked the elf off the shelf, and she thinks she's ruined Christmas, okay? Her mother's taking a nap, and as the news, this is a news story, okay? 
As the news story goes, the mother awakes to find her little girl at the front door trying to shoo a policeman off their front porch. Because what she had done in the midst of her panic of ruining Christmas was she called 911. But by the time the policeman showed up, she realized like, okay, wait, no, my mom's asleep. Please leave, right? It's really heartbreaking when you think about how, I mean, yeah, anyway. That reaction, that reaction was a reaction ruled, based in, and defined by fear. Because everything about Christmas in that moment was wholly defined by what that little girl had done. And she, out of fear, was trying to figure out how to make it right. Do you remember the, uh, we all... uh, most people are familiar with the parable of the prodigal son, and, and we all remember that the, he's the prodigal son because of what he did, right? He demands his inheritance, all of it, even though his father's not dead. He says, give me my inheritance. I just want it now, and I want to leave. And he leaves, and he goes off to a far country, and he squanders all of it, okay? He was an absolute disgrace, what he asked for and what he did. But as Jesus tells the parable, what he tells us is that the prodigal son came to his senses, realized what he'd done, realized that he's, he deserves everything that he's gotten. But he tells himself as he is starving and eating with pigs because he can't uh, afford any food, he tells himself, even my father's hired servants are well fed. And so he comes up with this speech in his head. He says, he comes up with this speech. I'm going to go home and this is what I'm going to say to my father. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. And the thing about that speech that he tells himself, he's telling the truth. He's not worthy any longer to be called a son. And we feel this tension. We feel this tension because this is a tension we all live in. Like we're told that we're children of God. But we know that we're not worthy. We know that we fail. We know that we still sin. We know that we even outright reject what we know is right or according to the will of God. But again, that's the glory of the truth of adoption. You're not worthy. But it wasn't given to you. It wasn't bestowed on you based on your worth. Your worth is given because it was bestowed on you out of love. We've received the spirit of adoption, not achieved it. So we know that without the Spirit, without conversion, without regeneration, without new birth, we are nothing but slaves to fear. Because the only way that we can, re- we can relate to God, the only possible relationship to God if we're not His children, uh, is to relate to Him as a judge. And that's exactly how the prodigal returns to his father. And do you remember what happens? Do you remember what happens when he actually gets home? He tries to get that speech out of his mouth that he's rehearsed, right? But before he can finish the whole thing, do you remember what happens? The father is on him. He's robing him. He's ringing him. And he's feasting him. And he exclaims, my son was dead, but now he's alive. My son was a slave, but now he's back. He's been restored. And we ask, well, how in the world could that be? How could somebody go from that? The elder brother wonders the same thing. How could somebody go from that to being a son? We actually sang about it, uh, the first song, And Can It Be, written by Charles Wesley. A couple of the verses go like this. Long my, imper- long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, 
and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. You think about the words there. Who in the world would be so confident that they could approach the throne of the maker and judge of the entire cosmos and claim a crown? His children could. That's the point. It's a state of being we're his children. I'm reminded the Bush daughters back in 08. um, Well, I guess... End of 08, beginning of 09, as Obama, uh, President Obama began his presidency, uh, the Bush daughters wrote a letter to the, uh, to the Obama's daughters. And this is what it said towards the end of it. It said, many people will think that they know him, but they have no idea how he felt the day that you were born. The pride he felt on your first day of school or how much you both love being his daughters. So here is our most important piece of advice. Remember who your dad really is. I love that. I remember it all these years later. What Paul is saying is, yes, remember who your father really is. But what he's also saying is remember who you are. You're his children and he's made you so. It's a glorious truth, right? But Paul didn't stop there. The second thing I want to look at is this. Adoption and suffering. Adoption and suffering. Paul brings up this glorious truth of adoption, that we're God's children and God is this perfect, loving Father. But he starts talking about some heavy things, namely suffering and pain and groaning. What is this? Well, look at verse 15. There's actually a hint there. Um, It says, we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba was kind of the common term uh, for for dad. It was a term children would use in the home for their father. But the thing is, uh, and it's been researched, Jewish prayers over over the centuries or millennia have been researched. No religious Jew would have ever dared call God Abba. It's too informal, too irreverent. But it's exactly what Jesus called him. It's also what Jesus taught us, how Jesus taught us to pray to him. It's a profoundly beautiful truth that we can call on the judge and maker of the universe in this way. But here's the thing. Don't rush to sentimentalize it because look at there. He says, we have the spirit. Look at verse 15. The spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry. Abba, Father. That word cry there, it's not just a calling out. It's not just a way of saying we say Abba, Father. That word cry there is used in the Gospels uh, when demon-possessed people come come face-to-face with Jesus. They cry out. It's also the same word used to tell us Jesus cried out from the cross. It's a word that denotes very heavy and intense emotional crying out. It's a word that it doesn't denote tranquility but turmoil. And this is actually the overall picture of where Paul goes, right? And the word that he keeps using after verse 18 is groaning. Creation's groaning. We're groaning. Even the spirit groans, right? 
And here it is. As, as you look at um, verses 18 and following, as, as Paul starts talking about suffering, why all of a sudden does he talk about suffering? Well, one thing he's trying to get at is this. There's not one place that we can look where in, in this world, in our lives, where this single conclusion can be denied. Things are not as they should be. Paul is saying creation knows it. We know it. The Spirit knows it. Things are not as they should be. Now, we could all come up with different explanations as to why that is. But at the least, we can agree that all rational worldviews hold in common that things are not as they should be. Nothing is perfect. Nothing is as fully as it should be. And what Paul is saying is that this is also the reality of the Christian life. Just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean that everything is okay now. Nowhere does the Bible come close to saying that. Things are not, even for the children of God, things are not as they should be. And it's not just us. Paul's saying it's the entire creation. Verse 20, he says, the creation and us were struggling with futility. Verse 21, it's in bondage to decay. This is the second law of thermodynamics. That makes me sound smart. I don't know thermal, thermo, whatever, dynamics. You don't sound so smart when you don't know how to pronounce it. Um, The whole universe is subject to deterioration. Verse 21, it's in pain. The whole world is in pain. Suffering is an inevitable part of the human experience. As long as we live here in this kind of fractured and broken world, there's no denying it. And so what Paul's trying to get across is that it is not that God's children do not suffer, but when they do, they cry, Abba. And we know that he hears us. We know that he hears us. How is that? You know the first time that the word Abba is used in the New Testament? It is when Jesus is prostrate in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that he's about to be betrayed as he looks at what lies before him. He falls on his face and he cries, Abba, Father, remove this cup from me. Right? It's the moment of Jesus' groaning. Yet, we know that when we cry, Abba, God hears us. How? Because in the next 24 hours, He gave up His only Son. When the eternally begotten Son of God faced God not as a Father, but as a judge... In our stead. This guy named Henry Light that wrote a hymn called Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. He wrote a bunch of great hymns. Um, but there's a line in Praise My Soul, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. It goes like this. Listen to this. Father Light, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hands, he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. You know what's interesting about that line? He says, Father Light. He tends and spares us. He finds comfort in thinking of God as a father. You know what's interesting about that line? Is that Henry Light had a wretched father. His parents separated when he was young. And his father remarried. And when he remarried, he put Henry in a boarding school. And when he would write his son at boarding school, he wouldn't sign the letters, your father. He signed them, your uncle. Meaning he wouldn't let Henry call him father Again, yet if you look up 
Lights, hymns, praise my soul, the King of heaven, Jesus, I, my cross have taken, and others. You'll find that the image of God as Father is a warm and comforting one. How is that? My friend Kevin Twitt puts it like this. It just shows forth the power of the gospel to deconstruct and reconstruct even something so simple as what it means to have a father. So if the gospel could deconstruct and reconstruct something so simple as what it means to have a father, could the gospel also reconstruct and deconstruct and reconstruct something so common to all of us as suffering, as pain, heartache, evil? Because the thing is, is we all experience pain, we all experience suffering, we all experience things are not as they should be in some way, shape, or form. But for Christians, one thing that happens is pains and disappointments of this life. They will do everything that they can to convince us that God is not good or that God is not there or I must have really screwed it up this time, right? But the power of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel is not that God takes our suffering away right now. But that we can know with full assurance that there is not one thing that comes into my life that has not passed through the hands of a perfect and sovereign, loving Father. Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Peter's writing to a group of people that were suffering. They're being killed for their faith. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Adoption and suffering. The other trajectory here, end with this, is adoption and hoping. Paul brings up suffering, but he doesn't leave it there. He it inevitably leads us to hope. Because see, when you start getting a biblical view of suffering, that it's real, that it's inevitable, it leads us hopefully to a biblical definition of hope. What is Christian hope? Christian hope is not, and we'll look at this more next week when we look at Romans 8.28. It's not, hey, we should just smile because everything's going to be okay. It's not put on your happy face no matter the circumstances. It's not you shouldn't struggle because not struggling is not possible in this life. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, he says, in this hope, we were saved. And we see all the the seeming contradictions, right? At the beginning, he says, we are sons. But then he says, we're waiting for adoption. At the beginning, he says, we are those who have been redeemed. But he says, we're also waiting for some redemption of our bodies, right? The Christian views and endures suffering differently because the Christian knows that suffering leads to glory. That there is glory It is full and it is complete and it is guaranteed. But the only way there is through suffering. How do we know that? Because that's the way Jesus attained it on our behalf. And it's the path that he called us to follow. Verse 18, Paul says, I consider this, because of this glory, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. Some of us, look, we've, some of you 
have got deep things going on. And you grieve, or at least maybe you feel guilty because you're grieving, or you have all the right in the world to grieve. And he's not saying don't grieve. He's saying, though, this glory is going to be so full and so marvelous and so unimaginable that we'll look back on our sufferings and we won't even be able to compare the two. Verse 17, he says, if we're children and we're heirs, heirs of God and heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. As surely as you suffer, as surely as he suffered, as surely as he was glorified, is as surely as you will be glorified. So adoption, obviously, if you don't know, a lot of you do, a very real thing in my family's life. Uh, the last year, year and a half ago, we had a little, he was seven months old, uh, seven-month-old little boy placed in our home uh, by Bibb County Defects. Uh, and so we were his foster parents, um, but knew, knowing that they wanted us to adopt him, and it took a long time. But this past February, we finally uh, adopted him fully, um, fully, legally, in every way, our child, right? Um, he had long been our child by that time. When you have a, anyway, when you change diapers, uh, there's a special bond there, right? Um, and there better be. I change your diapers. You better love me. No. Um, here's the thing, though. He is every bit a part of our family. I mean, doesn't miss a beat. Is exactly like my other kids. Is as loud as my other kids. Is as obstinate as my other kids. Right? But there's no... When you look at our family, there's never, never ever going to be any escaping the glaring fact that he is a two-year-old black boy with a white family. Can't get around it. And he never will. He never will. And I have no doubt that at some point he's going to struggle with his identity as my son because of that. And as his father, I'm going to love him. I do love him. I will love him. I will tell him I love him. I will hug him. I will discipline like I discipline my other kids. I will care for him like I care for my other kids. Not one ounce different than any of the others. I will disappoint him the way I disappoint my other kids. I will lose my temper with him the way I lose my temper with my other kids. I'll be selfish with him the way that I am with my other kids, right? But I will never know what it is like to be a black man in the American South. I can read about it until I'm blue in the face. I'll never know. And so I read this here, and on the one hand, we can say with Paul, right? I think what Paul's trying to say about the Christian life and being children of God is, let us not pretend that all is well when it is not. There's suffering, there's brokenness, there is pain, there is real pain, and it's not okay. And I can look at my family, and I can look at my son. My son has a loving white Family, but that does not make him immune to the issues of race in our culture. And it won't. I think this is what the beauty of what Paul and the rest of Scripture says, though. If you look at verse 17, it says, If we're his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided that we suffer, yes, but provided that we suffer with him. 
with him, with Christ. We are sons and daughters of God in each and every way the same. From our inheritance to our suffering, the same as Jesus. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews 2. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect. How? Through suffering. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is great cliffhanger at the end of the parable of the prodigal son. And you don't need to miss it. It's that the, the younger brother is restored. He was dead and now he's alive. But at the end of the parable, there's a problem. And it's the elder brother is still on the outside. And Jesus obviously looking right at the Pharisees as he's ending the parable that way. And in the parable, it's true. It's the father who welcomes the younger son back. And the younger son is robed and he's ringed and he's feasted. But you got to think about it. What is the only way that the younger son is welcomed back in, robed, ringed, and feasted? It is and can only be at the expense of the elder brother. And so now you've got to see the beauty of our adoption and the guarantee of our hope was that our elder brother knew exactly what it was going to cost. And he paid it. For the joy that was set before him, despised the shame, endured the cross, We sing about it sometimes, the hymn, How Great the Father's Love for Us. How great the pain of searing loss as the Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the Chosen One bring many sons to glory. I love the way Peter puts it, 1 Peter 1. He says it like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's the glory of adoption. It's the glory of knowing and believing that we are children of God. Let's pray. Father, we take it for granted, the fact that we call you Father. And we don't call you Father in the hopes that you might be one call you father because you've made us your children 
We weren't worthy. We aren't worthy. But you loved us with an everlasting love. And you are conforming us daily, even through suffering, by your loving hand, conforming us into the image of your Son. We thank you for your Son and our Savior, our true elder brother. We pray in his name. Amen.